Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. No, I'm not the singer. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster. I also happen to have published recently the thankfully best-selling, at least in Ireland thus far, biography of Richard Harris called Richard Harris Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. It was published in late 2022 to coincide with the release of the Sky Arts documentary The Ghost of Richard Harris, which is currently nominated for an Irish Film and Television Award. And here I must say, that fact makes me want to send out congratulations to all people involved, including Sky Arts, the director Adrian Sibley, Samson Films and so on. And in the name of transparency, I should point out that I am an associate producer of the documentary, which is based upon and arguably finally came into being because of the taped interviews I did with Richard between the years 1987 and 2001, and that sit at the soul of my book, in which, incidentally, they get their deepest, broadest and most truthful context. In fact, my taped interviews at Richard are used to voice the ghost in the documentary, a film that was given depth, according to the Guardian newspaper, as a result of the inclusion of those tapes. But let me tell you by way of a preface to the podcast that follows how this all came about. I first interviewed Richard Harris on Saturday morning, October the 10th, 1987. And at first we almost came to fisticuffs, largely because one of the first things I said to Richard was, Mr. Harris, you said recently the truth can be dull. But I would prefer today if we tried to make even murky truth gleam a little rather than go for colourful lies. I'd seen so many Harris interviews in which my sense was that he told endless anecdotes largely as a form of deflection to keep interviewers from probing into his soul. Anyway, how did Harris respond to what I said? He told me I sounded pretentious. Twenty minutes later, he erupted and told me I was a funny guy, with all my questions typed down on pieces of paper and me expecting to get answers from Richard Harris. He roared, there are no answers. Then Richard suggested that I shouldn't despair if I didn't like the way the interview was going. And if I did despair, I should go to therapy. I told him I wouldn't despair, but that I was intent on sticking to the questions I had set in advance. And so our duel continued. However, about an hour later, everything changed in an instant when Richard himself remembered that I'd once sent him a play I wrote called Father and Son. Based on my relationship with my dad, Harris said, and that had a lot to do with my album, My Boy, didn't it? I was delighted he remembered the script, and he then said it moved him deeply. Years later, Richard told me he felt it was at that moment our friendship began because he started to see me, not as just another journalist, but as a fellow writer. Within days, Harris asked me to write a skeleton script for his one-person show and joked, you know more about me than I do. But then I was so lucky drunk for so long I can't remember half my life. Yet I found even more telling something Richard said when he introduced me to producer Noel Pearson. Noel, this is Joe Jackson. We just did a brilliant interview. He was cheeky at first, but that's okay. He reminds me of me. Ego, thy name is Harris. Two years later, after reading a Sean Connery biography by Michael Feeney Callan, who had told the world he was going to write Richard's biography, Harris phoned me, said the Connery book was crap, and asked me to become his official biographer, which I remained for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, we never wrote that book, and I finally finished it to mark the 20th anniversary of the man's death. Why do I say all this, and in the process create absolutely the longest 
podcast preface I've ever spoken? Well, because I believe that if Richard and I didn't have a friendship, he would not have revealed himself to me at a core level in a way that he never did to any other writer. And it's not just me saying that. In one of the last phone messages Richard left for me, he pointed out yet again that I was the only journalist he'd ever opened up to. More recently, in 2022 in fact, his brother Noel suggested, I would say that you are not just the only journalist Richard ever opened up to, but one of the few people he ever opened up to. And in saying that, I include his family. And I say all this now simply because, even though I had a chat on camera with Adrian Sibley for his movie, The Ghost of Richard Harris, only two minutes of the two hours we talked ended up on the screen. Of course, I'm delighted to be included alongside the likes of Vanessa Redgrave and Russell Crowe. But for the record, I was deeply disappointed when a section that to me was central in relation to revealing the psyche or soul of Richard Harris, namely a clip during which Adrian posted some wonderful childhood pictures of Richard and that then led to a clip of Richard weeping as he read at the age of 70, for me, a poem he wrote 33 years earlier called On the One Day Dead Face of My Father. I still wish Adrian had retained that clip rather than take it out to make way for a longer section about Richard's use of cocaine. That tiny gripe beside, I love the movie, and I hope it wins a NIFTA. But again, for the record, I have decided to make one, two, maybe three podcasts based on the conversations Adrian and I had on camera for his movie. And I do describe them as chats or conversations, because Adrian himself does, and he prefers not to call them interviews as such. In other words... When we talked, he wasn't working from a set of typed questions. So now, let's hear part one, uncensored, of Joe Jackson chatting with Adrian Sibley in, I think it was May 2022, for the movie The Ghost of Richard Harris. And if by chance, or because I pushed the level of your tolerance too far with the length of this prelude, you now are more inclined to run away, I will say before you go, check out my book, Richard Harris Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven which was not published when Adrian and I had this little chat, although we do refer to it. So you have all the perfect questions that are going to take me there anyway, don't you? No, I don't have any questions at all. I claim audio, like you asked. So we're going to do that. What? We're going to do audio. Oh, first? Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. And then questions will come out of that. So I did that with David, actually. You can, you can play some audio, you can chat about it. You'll say something, I'll ask you a question, we'll move on to another bit of audio. So, they, so you'll find that the questions happen without you even thinking you're being asked a question. But then we have a set of questions that are not related to audio. Not necessarily, no. I don't do questions when I do Oh, do you not? No. Um, I don't really follow questions at all. So just don't worry about it. Don't overthink it. Just respond to what you hear. And then, you know, we'll be having a conversation. I'm sure that everything will come out nicely. Joe Jackson, interview one. Okay. So is everyone nice and settled? I have a wonderful facility. I'm delivering what people expect of me. Well, I'll tell you what happens. Sometimes you have to cut the cloth according to the suit. I suppose um, the old format of telling jokes, telling stories, seems to be what they really want. I mean, it's, it's, it's being conditioned by their requirements more than anything else. I have no particular uh, um, fear getting down and discussing my private life, providing that it's a part of my private life that should be made public. But I don't necessarily believe 
because one makes one's living uh, from the public, they're entitled to know and devour your private life. That was the first answer to the first scripted question I asked Richard Harris in 1987. Absent from that quote is where he said, I don't necessarily believe what you seem to be hinting at. And what he was picking up on was the fact that my first question to him had been, before the interview started, I, there was a tiny preamble while he was having breakfast. And I said, Mr. Harris, you have said truth can be dull, but I would prefer today if we could try to make murky truth gleam a little rather than go for colorful lies. And that made him pause. And I thought he was going to throw the butter knife at me. And then he said, did I say that? And I said, no, I'm saying the last half. Does it sound like you? And he said, no, you sound totally fucking pretentious. But go ahead, you direct our little movie. So the first question was, I said, OK, so would it be fair to say that in TV interviews, such as the one with Jonathan Ross two weeks ago, you use anecdotes as a ploy against self-revelation and speak more often for effect than in truth? And that's how he responded. And that set up the whole parameter of where we'd go over the next 14 years of interviews. Because he was drawing a, a distinct line between the private self and the public self. And in that quote, the first line was not from that particular part. It was taken from a later interview, where he admitted that he had a performance he gave to journalists. So during interviews, he would be the Richard Harris he thought each specific interviewer expected him to be. He very rarely was the real Richard Harris. So my going into him that day, when I'd seen him on the Jonathan Ross show, I thought, here he is again, telling the same 10 funny stories. This is boring. There's more to the man. I know his poetry. I know his music. I've read interviews with him. I don't want that nonsense when I go into the room. So I took a gamble. He could have headbutted me. He could have thrown me out. And after the interview, one of the most telling comments he made was, he, interviewed, he introduced me to Noel Pearson, and he said, this is Joe Jackson. We just did a brilliant interview. He was very cheeky at first, but that's okay because he reminds me of me. That's Richard's ego. So I think once we connected on that level, his reticence in terms of going into the personal evaporated. That's a really good answer. Perfect, okay, let's just do another one. All right. Yeah. So, Joe, I'm used to the fact that was it um, was it something that you felt as a journalist that Richard Harrison played this part with journalists for so long that actually he just avoided saying anything that was really serious and just was anecdotal, and and actually you wanted to uncover something else within him. I think he was that in his real life too. I mean, when he published his poetry book, I and the Membership of My Days, he said, this is the real Richard Harris, as in the kid who wrote poetry from the age of nine and hid it under the bed. I think there was always a part of him. It wasn't just a, a pose he put on for journalists. He kept a part of himself private, I would suggest, even from those who loved him, including his family. And I don't know. His brother Noel said to me recently, you seem to be one of the few people, not just journalists, that Richard opened up to. How did that happen? And I have no answer for why that happened or how it happened. But I wasn't going to accept the performance from Richard Harris. And I'm happy to say that for the 14 years after our first interview, I got it only occasionally when he'd get angry or he wanted to adopt a particular position. But most of the time he was, he was pose-free. Why 
did he feel the need to hide behind his persona and this performance and telling the same jokes and, and not really revealing what had happened in his life that had affected him on a deeper level? I do, I, you know, there's, there's a maze of answers. It goes back to him feeling he was lost amid eight children in the family, that nobody could hear him. If you actually break down his earliest poems, the cry at the heart of all the childhood poems and the poems from his teens is, I am here, why don't you see me? And when he goes to London, the poems written henceforth are, I am here, I don't want you to see me. So it's like he had hid, and he told me one of the phrases he used in that 1987 interview, which to me was most telling, I took the concept from a song by Dory Previn, where he said, if you're lost in the middle of a large family, you begin to fight for attention. And I said, you know, you tap dance them for their affection or for their love. And he said, that's what I started doing from whatever age I felt. They don't see me here at the table. I'm child number five. I have to put up my hand and say, hey, Dickie Harris is here too. So I think part of it was he just learned to withdraw. And he was, he was I think, by nature a loner. And he wasn't going to break that down just because a journalist came into his presence for an hour. You know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me just play this bit. Okay. I love this sort of reputation that I created. I think it was all for fake. It was a brilliant design to keep people away. So I had millions of acquaintances who I wouldn't remember the next morning. Now because I've slowed down, right? So my wild days. Like the pirate ship has landed, like the pirate ship is now beached. That was Richard Harris, he, um, a year and a bit before he died. And he was, it was the last interview we did. And uh, it, it was just an amplification of a thought he'd articulated from the first time we met, which is that, I, like as I said earlier, he gave people what he thought they wanted. And that, re that related also to relationships, to even family. But I think at that stage, at 70, it was like, I know who I am. I don't have to pose anymore. And he said as, same, as part of that same conversation, I don't even do interviews anymore. So it was almost like all the poses had dissolved. He was a 70-year-old man. At the time, he told me he was writing a play about his life. And I don't think he felt he had to be anything other than Richard Harris. But the key question, and it's in a poem he wrote called Excuse Me While I Disappear, which was we were supposed to call his biography, excuse me, while I disappear, was the key question to him was, this is Richard Harris, but who is Richard Harris? And in 1993, when he, I asked him why he wanted to go back over his life to do a biography with me, he said, you get to a certain age and your friends start falling off the vine, they're dying, and you wonder, is it me next? And he said, I just want to go back and find where did I create the public persona of Richard Harris? Was it in London when I came to London and became an actor? Or was it on the rugby fields of Limerick? Where did it happen? Where did it start? And I think there was a huge disjuncture in Richard Harris, which I only noticed listening back to the tapes of even the first interview. The first time I asked him, to, I tried to probe deeper into why he chose to become an actor, was the first time I saw him or heard him stammer. He also began to go, well, one is, I, I am, you are. And it was almost like 
he was being pulled between his authentic voice and the fake Richard Harris, which is what he's talking about in that tape. So I think he spent much of his life trying to go back to find out where did it all start? The pure Richard Harris, the original Richard Harris, Dickie Harris rather. Where do you think he created Richard Harris in your view of his life? I think he created Richard Harris when he moved to London. You know, he made a, a remarkable comment in 1973 whereby he said, I don't like the name Richard Harris. And I suppose we can't use the word these days, but he used it, he says it sounds too poofy. That's remarkable, you know, that he would actually didn't want to be called by his Christian name. I think it was, it was like, to extend the metaphor I uh, brought up earlier about him tap dancing, he said to me, to answer that question, why did you become an actor? He got really angry at me at first. This is where I saw the erupt of Richard Harris, the attack on me verbally, the attempt to silence me, the bullying me, the shouting at me, and saying, you're a funny guy coming in here with all your questions, there are no answers. And then after three days of reflecting on it, he came back to me and he said, I understand why I was so reactive. He said, I've never stopped to think really why I became an actor. And he said, having given it thought over the three days, I now believe it was, I identified after I had TB, this is a way of getting my mother and father to say, we have a son called Dickie Harris, that's him there up on stage, aren't we proud of him? And the tragedy for Richard Harris is that both his parents died before they could deliver that. And I think that was a huge element of irresolution and rage in his soul, that they died before he became famous. So I think he... The, the, sorry, go ahead, it's all right. I just was thinking that this was quite interesting of... Automatically, everybody in that room changes attitude, changes their personality to deal with this. I, I can't see that as uh, relevant, sorry. It's because that, that's, that's, him talk, that's him talking about Henry IV and his, the, the, the madman he plays in a play. You know, I don't think, I don't think it relates to what, it, what we were saying about the creation of Richard Harris. Well, it doesn't relate to that, but what it does relate to is the fact that Richard Harris created this persona, yeah. and when people came across him, they thought they had to react to him in a certain right. way. I see. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I it wasn't yeah. just him putting on a performance, it meant that people responded to expecting that he would either be Okay, well, I'll pick up on that, but I'll turn it around. Okay, when I hear Richard Harris talking about the way... He was talking about how he studied for the role of Henry IV, uh, about how people react to, to a person who's mad, or somebody who's uh, imbalanced within a room. The whole room, the atmosphere, the people around him all change. And people did respond that way to Richard Harris. But to me, far more interesting is the fact that from about 1963, when he first began to get press as a brawler and a womanizer and a drunk, he said to me at one point, I then began when I would enter a room to go, I better behave like the Richard Harris they expect me to be. Funny, drunk, carefree, creating havoc. And then he brought that onto movie sets from Major Dundee onwards. Well, he may have started on Mutiny of the Bounty. But I think that phrase, creating havoc, I will always go back to his childhood because I think the first 25 years are far more important than people give him 
give credence to. His niece once said to him, after he'd been at a family gathering, maybe in the 1990s, he was sitting there and he told me, I'm sitting listening to my mother, to my uh, nieces and nephews and my brothers talking about the happy days in Overdale. And he said, I am thinking to myself, excuse the language, but he said it, what the fuck house, whose house was this? I have no memory of the mother's laughter, the father's laughter. Jacqueline stopped the car, he said, I have no memories of that kind of joyousness or joyful life in Overdale. And she said, don't you understand, your parents only began to laugh after you left. Now that's a staggering thing to say to a son. But part of it, and she said, you created havoc from the age of four. When you first went to school, you could even say he was a hellraiser then, he was setting fire to toilets. He would hit a nun who hit him with a ruler. And this to me was part of him trying to get attention. So that creating havoc, you carry that on into the field where he's battling daily with Jim Sheridan. It's the same kind of familial setting recreated on Hollywood movies, or made in Ireland or whatever. Do you think he reveled in the Hellraiser tank though? No, I think at the end he despised it. He said to me in 1990, and it's, that, it's, the, it's a particular soul-searching uh, interview where he talks about making the field and how it, he had a metaphysical phase of reassessment. And he, I said to him, I'm not going to put anything in this Irish Times article about your women, your drink, or your drugs. And he said, fucking great, don't. And he said, even the people who like me after 30 years must be bored by all that shit. So I think he felt hemmed in by the, and particularly in England, where his view was, they expect me to be an Irish peasant, so that's what I'll be. And I think at the end, he, and that I think also is why, at the end of our first interview, when I said, my aim is to turn your image inside out. My image, your image is one dimensional, it's sometimes no dimensional. I want to give it three dimensions and take it away from just the Hellraiser. And my conclusion at the end of, of writing a book about him is that he was a, Hellraiser reaching for heaven. So from 90 to his death, he was on a spiritual search. To, to, so to be reduced to just, he goes on Jonathan Ross or Johnny Carson or whoever it is, tell us about the drink, tell us about the drugs, tell us about the women. He detested that in the end, but he still did it. You know, he still delivered those stories when he was, but he told me, he, after one interview in Trinity College, he said, Jesus, if anyone asks me again about my battles with Marlon Brando and Mutiny on the Bounty, I'll kill them. But he created that image, and then he was suffocated by it, swamped up by it, you know? Yeah, do you think it's also, in retrospect, meant that he was underestimated? Because there was that the Hellraiser headline that was easy for people to just refer to, and they never really looked beyond the surface of who he was. I think that's the great tragedy about Richard Harris's life and career. But you have to blame him for it too, because he decided to play that role as soon as he came to the UK in 55. You know, and in the end, he got lost inside it. And this is what I say, he, he has a one-dimensional or no-dimensional public image, and all these other dimensions, such as the, the great poetry he wrote, the screenplays he worked on, the films he made, the theatrical performances. I mean, one of the greatest nights, one of the most transcendent nights I ever saw in theater was Henry IV. And I thought, good God, nobody has seen this. This is not on film. 
and then you pick up the, the paper the next day and all you read about is the story about the fart. He farted on stage one night. That was the way the media reduced him to just a stereotype and a lot of the time it was racist in the UK. That's a really interesting point. Are we going to be on my line? Uh, if you want to say it out loud? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to say anything. If Joe looks off, make sure he looks on. Because I can't. I'm not watching it. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I think I shall cut that chat there. And I hope you may tune in for podcast two based on the conversation Adrian Sibley and I had for his movie, The Ghost of Richard Harris. If you want to buy my book, it's available on Amazon.com from the Book Depository, Barnes & Noble in America and many Irish bookstores. Uh, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. Didn't I mention the title earlier? Thank you for listening.